0: you're listening to Square One, a podcast where we interview entrepreneurs, investors, and executives at the cutting edge of business, and I'm your host, Ramin Shah. All disruptive technologies start selling first to small companies, the early adopters in the market. As the customer base and market matures, successful disruptive technologies evolve, adding sophistication that larger customers need at scale. Intercom is a perfect example of this. First selling to companies in their Y Combinator batch, today Intercom has raised over $250 million and counts over 30,000 organizations as customers. Intercom is one of the fastest growing SaaS companies of all time, and with good reason. The team had a fundamental perspective on how to make a messenger product for the enterprise versus the consumer landscape. And this vision has translated into a robust and holistic customer communication platform that services the full life cycle for internet businesses from acquisition to engagement and engagement to retention. I chatted with Des Trainer, co-founder and chief strategy officer at Intercom on all things Intercom and operating a rapidly growing startup. Welcome Des. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me. Hey Des, I'm you know excited to have you on the show today and dive you know pretty deeply into Intercom, your perspectives on the space and, and really operational lessons from founding to scaling high growth company. But And before we dive into that, tell us a little bit more about your background and the journey to
1: founding Intercom. Sure. I started as a computer science student uh, back in 99, I guess. And from there, I attempted a PhD, which was all focused on why are we so bad at teaching people computer science, specifically teaching programming, recursion, pointers, all the sort of classics. Um, And I ultimately got somewhat disillusioned with the wild and wonderful world of academia. So I took a job as a software consultant, designing software. Uh, Specifically, this was in the the UX revolution of 2005, 6, 7. And I was was a senior usability analyst uh, for a year. Uh, Then I started a consultancy with uh, a guy called Owen, who is CEO of Intercom. From there, we very much obsessed over the 37 signals model of like build software for other people so that you can afford to eventually build some on the side for yourself. We had a side product called Exceptional. And one of the biggest challenges we had with Exceptional was talking to our customers. Uh, It was really, really hard. In 2007, eight, nine, the norm for talking to your customers was to take an export from your your product database. You might sync that against your PayPal subscription because there was no Stripe back then. And you'd import a resulted sort of corrected list of who's actually paying for your software. You might import that then into a MailChimp or a campaign monitor or whatever their, their equivalent was back then. I think both of those were around. And you would then send out the email, uh, which might say something like, hey, we're the team behind Exceptional. What should we work on next? Or what features do you want to see? Or what's, how's it all going? Or please complete this survey. And you generally get like a few hundred replies in your Gmail. Uh, which was a really, really ineffective and inefficient way to work. Ultimately, talking to customers was hard, so we didn't do a lot of it. And one day we we decided like, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we could talk to them when they're in the product? So when the customers logged in, we had this little speech bubble that popped up from the bottom right-hand corner. And it said something to the tune of, hey, we're here, we're after fixing that big problem we had last week, what would you like us to work on next? And the vast majority of the sort of replies we got were along the lines of what the hell is this thing this is really cool how do i get one of these and that to me was like the the beginning of the sort of idea that we're not the only people who want to talk to our customers and we you know we said from the start our mission is to make internet business personal that is like build a bridge between web product owners and the people who pay per month uh, you know at the time as we have often said we were working uh we were often working in a coffee shop uh, where there was a new coffee shop owner starting off his own business, selling Coffee. And we were really envious of how he had such a like sort of clear and strong relationship with all his regular customers in comparison with us who had nearly never met a customer. So the idea that we could actually now have conversations with him inside our product was, was really, really cool. Uh, and it seemed to resonate because everyone who saw it was like, this thing is really, really cool. So ultimately, we uh, we decided to go from there and say, maybe we should try and build a product that lets people talk to people in their product. And it started to work. Uh, People, it it caught on. I remember being on Skype calls with people when they first saw like their active user list of like, here's who's in your product right now. Would you like to talk? Their minds were blown away. And uh, and I think that like magic um, kind of really gave birth to the idea that's gone on to become Intercom. We we named it Intercom after the idea of an actual real real world Intercom. The idea being that you're like the product owner and you can like, hello, uh, send a message out to your customers, and uh, and the logo has like eyes and a mouth because you can see and talk to your customers inside Intercom, and that's what we've always wanted to do. And um, I think over the seven years that have passed, we are like our our language and our thinking and framing has like ex- extended as we've sold to more and more customers. Today we talk about things like marketing automation, you know, lead capture, like all that, all the sort of like standard dialogue you hear, but uh, but. The message the whole time has been, let's make it easy for people who run software companies to talk to people who use software. Uh, that served us well for the past eight years, and I hope it can serve us well for the next eight.
0: And so, you know, Intercom today, right, especially for everyone listening, it's, it's at significant scale, right? You have over 30,000 customers. You guys have raised over $250 million. You know, one, one of my favorite books lately has been uh, Elon Gill's High Growth Handbook. I had on the on the podcast a couple episodes ago. And in the book, you know, Elad and Mark Andreessen have a conversation about how when you've hit product market fit, it's really important to go to product number two, right? Mm-hmm. And you alluded to this a little bit. Um, I'd love for you to expand a bit more on, you know, what was the, you know, how was that original vision for intercom, right? How has that evolved over time? And, you know, how have you guys thought about continual product development, you know, which spaces to enter, who to compete with, so on and so forth, mm-hmm. as you've gone really from, a singular product to more of a platform
1: i think that we like product number one sustained itself quite well for a long time for us and our our idea of expanding into the second third fourth product areas really was about realizing the rest of the mission so at some abstract level you could say we want to make internet business personal and specifically what that looks like is uh making all the conversations between businesses and their customers and customers and their businesses uh, personal. And obviously, to make that work, we have to be the power behind We have to be the engine that powers all of those conversations. So, well, I think when we started out, uh, we were selling mostly to tiny startups where kind of like everyone does a bit of everything. So like your CEO might also be your customer support and might also run your marketing um, I, as we've kind of grown up a bit and as our customers have uh, grown in, in stature and scale, we've realized that these uh, use cases start to split a little bit and the support team and the marketing team start to look like different teams and the marketing team and the sales team start to look like different teams. Uh, so what that meant for us was we needed to like refine our products specifically for the new customers that they had. And ultimately that led to us actually thinking about them as separate product spaces uh, which is the first big sort of split we made. The idea that uh, that you could adopt Intercom and just use this for customer support. It's okay if you don't want to use us on your website, you can just use us in your product or vice versa. Uh, and that was probably the biggest sort of initial uh, change that we made. And we went from probably having a strong product market fit with one tiny early stage startup type uh, uh, sort of persona of sorts, uh, to then having like, well, People are now ripping out Zendesk and replacing Zendesk with us. And all of a sudden, the very nature of our like extremely strong product market fit started to get questioned because the immediate questions is, oh, well, Zendesk does this wonderful CSAT report. Where's your CSAT report? And you yeah, start to realize, oh, well, the product needs to mature. Uh, or, or rather, the product lines need to mature to compete in their sort of in their new battlegrounds, in a sense. So I think that was probably our, our biggest initial shift, which was like, as we then sort of said, as we put our hand up for these jobs in isolation. We had to then mature the products to make sure that they could each kind of stand on their own two feet and not not lean on the fact that isn't it great that everything's connected, uh, but actually be independently a good product for each of the things they do. Uh, and then I think the next pieces that we worked on, which is probably bring, brings us kind of closer to maybe the last two years, we've um, we've been observing trends in the industry and also just looking at types of conversations where we think Intercom has something unique to offer. An example might be um, so we noticed a lot of people would use intercom to point out different parts of their product. And we never designed it for that, but it was such a clear uh, sort of uh, uh, behavioral path through the product that we figured we needed to like make sure that we, if, if everyone's gonna use us for it, we should not be bad at it. So uh, so we released a product feature feature uh, specifically saying like, that's the type of conversation we think we can add a lot to. We're already in the product, so we can do all this in a really, really smooth way. Uh, so so we, we launched that product and it's been a resounding success. The other like sort of big uh, seismic shift in the industry is like Intercom, businesses that use Intercom tend to talk to their customers more uh, and that can be surprising because a lot of our competitive tools, their big claim is you actually don't have to talk to your customers as often or, or like we'll find out ways to minimize your cost of support and yet here's us waving a flag saying but we're, 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 we're going to amplify that, we're going to make more conversations. And like the real, like the real crux of this uh, paradox is like, we are going to get you valuable conversations, uh, whereas everyone else is going to get you like, like you know, hey, there's a bug in the login type of conversations. So you kind of have this like this this two by two sort of axes of like, uh, it, how valuable is the conversation to the business, and how valuable is the conversation to the customer? And I think. Generally speaking, things that are not valuable to the customer are like uh, are the th- are what we would call like dumb contacts. However, once you open up all comm, channel- all comm channels, you'll get more of them. So how do you solve that without saying, buy Intercom, I know you need to add 10 people to your support team. That's not a good pick, right? Uh, automation is the answer. So what we now do is we have two products in this space, we have our custom bots product which, let, which lets you, like, start conversations with your with your customers and your visitors on your website. And it basically sort of says, like, here's the five predefined paths that they can go down. And it's kind of like a chatbot-style interaction. And then on the far end, we have, like, our answerbot product, which basically says, like, based on all of the conversations it looks like you have, here are the things that account for, like, 15% of your total conversation volume that we think are directly answerable because you're saying the same thing every time anyway. And to do that, we look at, a, you know, we look at how, say, how often are the replies identical, uh, how often are they highly rated by the customer, et cetera. And we can kind of suggest, here's the things we think you can automate away with zero damage to your customer experience whatsoever. And that's our AnswerBot product. So I think like, like so, our, our la- literally our last three releases were CustomBots, AnswerBot, and Productors. And that's like, I guess you could call that like, product market fit challenges numbers four, five, and six for us. But um, it, like, it, uh, Mark Andreessen is absolutely correct that uh, I think... Especially when you have 30,000 customers, uh, the job, a lot of it is like you, You in the early days, you're much more explorer. And, and then as you start to rack up the customer account, the opportunity of exploit becomes a lot richer. So you have this idea of like, well, we have this captive uh, sort of uh, happy user base of 30,000 businesses. Uh, they're probably also having conversations that we don't yet cover. Can we work out a good way to do that? And that, that like can be a substantial piece of our roadmap at any given time. There is still other stuff which is like, hey, what else might we build that would like either fuel or motivate further conversations or in general, you know, based on where we are, based on our platform today, what else can we, what what new capabilities can we offer? So that's kind of how we've been working across it for the last few years.
0: And how do you think about, you know, how do you think about that transition when you think about how kind of every kind of at scale company starts to become more and more of a platform, right? So you, you alluded to, you know, conversations in which you would have with customers in which, yeah. you know, you would develop kind of the next, next set of product. And all of a sudden you're in a new auto you're competing yeah. with a Zendesk, right, yeah. For support, right? So when you think about kind of the point solutions that start out, Intercom starts out kind of as mm-hmm. a point, and Slack as a point, Zendesk as a point, et cetera. But as they all scale, right, they become more and more of kind of platform type products and they all start to coalesce or start to
1: get into each other's backyards. Yeah. How, how do you think about that? The logic behind, like, so we have a platform where we've maybe like 200 apps in our app store that are built entirely on top of Intercom, and uh, and I think the logic for us has always been: we can't literally do everything for every business, uh, nor can anyone. Uh, What we, what our job is, uh, as once you've kind of crossed your first true two or three hurdles of product market fit, your job becomes a lot more about what's the highest common denominator across the customer base that I want to serve? And I'm specifically saying highest common denominator. So like, what's the most we can do that is most common to everyone? And that's your core product. And then the platform piece then becomes, what are the pieces that we can't, you know, we can't justify investing massive effort in because maybe only 5% of our users actually need it. Uh, And that's where you kind of carve out opportunities for platforms. Uh, sorry, for, for a platform. So as an example, like, we have, uh, you know, one of our probably most signature feature or, or uh, pieces of technology is our messenger, the thing that you see on every website. Uh, we, like, over the past maybe three or four years, we've had, we've seen maybe, like, 15 or 20, like, direct pixel-for-pixel pixel copycats of the messenger, all with some version of, we're a little bit cheaper, or we do this, or we don't do that, or whatever, right? And, um, and, and look, like obviously, like, some of the big incumbents have copied our messenger, too, and that's fine. Um, The thing we had to avoid was getting into, like, a a pixel war, like, who's got the most beautiful messenger, or getting into a feature war of, like, we've got attachments, now you've got attachments, all right, we've got emoji, now you've got emoji, we've got this, you know. So, you start to realize, like, especially when you have, like, the largest uh, install base, that the best way to actually compete there is to say, we have the best platform for all of the edge niche cases that no one could ever justify ROI from an ROI positive point of view investing in. And that's what we have. And that's where the 200 apps come in. So I think that's one whole piece of, of our platform strategy is like last mile integrations to serve the end to use case, if you know what I mean, just really box off every, every different way that Intercom can be used and make sure that we have an offering there. If you want to have an incredibly deep in-app survey, we have a Qualtrics app. If you want to have video calls inside your product, we have an air call up. We could never afford to support our own surveys uh, to, to that level of depth, or to our own do our own like video calling to that level of depth. However, we could definitely integrate people who can. Um, so that's one whole angle of the platform. The other piece of the platform, I think, is like is the challenge around interoperability. As the product grows up, uh, it has to play nice with others. I think when you're when we again when your customers are pretty small, the opportunity for you to be the single source of truth uh, is quite high. But um, once you start to scale out, it becomes uh, incredibly problematic because there will be multiple different uh, competing sources, and the biggest challenge you have there is to like integrate really well with like the, the kind of kind of the dominant players. For us, like most people who are in mature, like let's say mid-market companies, they use Intercom, but they also use Zendesk, or they also use Hub- Salesforce, or they also use HubSpot, and yep. if we don't have a way to sit nicely alongside that. Then we 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 risk like the customer not getting the full value of Intercom. So uh, so the other part of the platform strategy is to make sure that you're easy to integrate with, and easy, and you integrate really well with others. And sometimes that means us building our own things where where we really care, and sometimes it just means exposing our APIs as we have done a lot of times to let people build their own stuff on top. Like that's probably where at least a hundred of the two hundred apps have come from is just. People randomly saying, hey, you know, intercom's got good use here, so we should, adopt, we should integrate with intercom so that our customers can all use it. So like, there's kind of like there's a smorgasbord of reasons why platforms are useful. They can be competitive weapons, they can be interoperability necessities, they can be ways to sort of fuel future growth. Um, all of that is kind of necessary in a sense.
0: You had, a, you had a really interesting tweet up pretty recently, and it was, it was speaking to the Zoom IPO, which, which I want to kind of unpack a little bit as, as it pertains to Intercom as well as kind of this thread we're talking about on how you think of, you know, the next set of products or so. Um, and the tweet was basically, it put, you know, Zoom at the center of four concentric circles, mm-hmm. right? So the circles were, you know, one, when people tell you it's a problem, two, but it's a terrible experience to use any of the current solutions three and there's already a massive market for it and then four and you can envisage and build you know a much better product so talk talk a little bit about that framework you know how kind of intercom sits at the center of that and and what I'm curious also is how you juxtapose that against the you know relatively pervasive idea in, in tech and, and for startups which is this idea of as a startup you know chase a market that's small but fast growing right
1: mm-hmm I think so. There's there's lots of ways to make money, um, uh, but I'll come back to that point in a second. Um, The first, I I guess, in in your four criteria, I think the first uh, the first statement is specifically it's when people tell you it's not a problem, or 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 is that what I wrote, or it's already been solved. Just about that. Yep, that's right. Yep. So so yeah, I think the criteria were like when 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 it's allegedly a solved problem, but it's a shit experience uh, with a massive market, and you can see a way to make a good experience. That's usually, at the epicenter of all that, is usually a a huge opportunity. Uh, Another thing I've said in this exact same vein has been, like, you need to solve uh, a frequent big problem, not a frequent small problem and not a a big small problem. You know, like, ideally, the problem your product solves should be something that's common and big. Common such that people are willing to invest in a solution and big such that a that it's actually an order of magnitude that will actually trigger you to go and purchase software. Um, All of these things are roundabout ways of saying like, you know, uh, building a better recipe app, like based on the ingredients you have in the fridge. It's not a big thing, it's not an expensive thing, it's not a valuable thing, no one really cares. Uh, So I think like the, uh, you know, the core idea there, and like, so like, let's put a few other other companies. Zoom is not a freak here. Stripe is is in that exact same space, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone tells you, well, what's the problem? PayPal works, right? And you're like, nope, PayPal's shit to use. Uh, it's like, and the guys obviously were able to work out a better way to do it. Um, I would say Slack is in that space, in a, in a sense. Um, there wasn't, I mean, I know like there was Basecamp and HipChat and stuff like that, but for the most part, uh, like I, I a lot of friends who used, say, Skype at work or whatever, and it just wasn't a great experience. Uh, and as a result, like, you know, People were saying it was a solve problem. IRC already exists, et cetera. But ultimately, like, if you can envisage a, bit, a bigger, better solution, there's a there's a rich, rich market to be had there. Um, I think your question about, like, uh, contrasting this against the sort of pervasive knowledge that says uh, tackle a small market, fast growing, I don't think they're incompatible. Uh, I, I just think, like, you know, it's... A lot easier if uh, if all your customers are all rounded up and all already hating on the incumbent and crying out for a new one, then you know it's it's you know it's kind of an easier route to market in a sense. Like the nice thing about Superhuman is they just need to tell Gmail users we're a faster Gmail. Like they don't yeah. have to like hunt these people. Like Gmail users are not some random people in the forest where every three days you stumble upon one. Like it's kind of quite easy. It's, you know, if you can trust that against, say, like, we are a project management tool for handling scrum through an agile manifesto with two interesting quirks. I'm like, right, good luck finding those people, you know. Uh, so, I, you know, there's, like, there's value in sort of saying, like, so for us, an example might be, like, every software company on earth needs customer support. Yep. We believe we have a great customer support solution. We've envisaged it, it's live, uh, I think there's a spectrum of how you'd rate the current support offerings. Some some of them are quite good, some of them are quite bad. Uh, but like, gosh, it's it, it you know it's easy to have that conversation with somebody. Like, if I talk to anyone, like even you and your company, do you have a customer support solution? Of course you do. Uh, it's not a head scratcher, right? If um if I was trying to sell you, I don't know, like a remote payroll software for handling remote uh, remote workers or something like that, right? You might not have that problem. So that's a much smaller market, and, it's, and because it's a much smaller market, it's a harder route to market. You need to. Your first challenge is let's find the people. Whereas our challenge is, hey, every software company on earth needs intercom. We just need to tell them. Uh, so anyway, so I think that's how I contrast it. it all that said, like on the sort of uh, the general startup advice of find a small market that's growing fast, it comes down like a lot of this and like so much, so much startup advice really ignores the challenges of marketing. A lot of this comes down to how easy is it to find the people. If you can like, if you can find all of the like the addressable market really easy and get in front of them because they all read tech blogs or they all you know log into a certain Slack or they all like are you they're, they're all reachable on Facebook or something. That's great. Like the, I think you have to bear in mind like the the addressability of the market is more important than the size of the market a lot of the times. Mm-hmm. So like, if you're building a software that. For a small group of people that grows relatively fast, but they're really easy to get in front of and you're relatively differentiated, that's a much stronger position than, for example, trying to um, trying to sell, I don't know, like payroll software to every company in earth. Yes, every company in Earth needs payroll software. However, you're gonna have to really struggle to differentiate yourselves and you know, so be it. So I, I you know the only other thing I'd say is like there is value in betting on trends in general. Like intercom massively benefited from the sort of growth of the software as a service. Uh you know, uh, trend that kind of kicked in in maybe 2007 and is still kind of ride, riding high today with all these IPOs. So um, mm-hmm. I, I think, like, you know, if you can back ideas that are growing in, uh, or, like, uh, back uh, both ideas or, like, target markets that are, like, growing in scale, that's really useful too. Uh, obviously, like, in general, we're all doing that because all Internet businesses are kind of blowing up in a sense. But, like, um, like a, a great example right now might be, like, I think remote working is going to be more of a thing in the future than it was in the past. Yeah. So you could argue that you know one could um, one could do good business, uh, basically putting together a remote index, which is an index of the stocks of all the software that helps people work remotely. And I bet yeah. you know, that perform pretty well in the market, right? Uh, yeah. So yeah, so I you know so generally I don't I don't disagree with the idea of find trends that are on the way up and backing them. But like Jesus, I also don't disagree with the winning lottery numbers, you know. <laughs> so like. Uh, <laughs> Uh, that's that's fair.
0: No, that's that's a that's a fair that's a that's a fair way to cut it in a in a really good framing. Let's keep going, kind of on this thread, right? Of operating lessons, kind of you know business lessons as, as you guys have, have scaled, obviously a, a hyper growth company. You know, before diving into that too deeply, I want to I want to take a step back and talk a little bit about the decision to be in Ireland.
1: We started in Ireland. We were all Irish, and. A few of us, we were four founders, a few of us had reasons to stay in Ireland. Um, we also, like, you know, one doesn't simply pack your bags and move to San Francisco. Like, there's a lot of, there's a whole chain of events that has to happen around, things like visas and immigration. <laughs> um, I'm sure I don't need to explain it, like, but, like, uh, so simply getting there isn't actually, like, a straightforward thing. Now it's, like, totally, a, 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 it's totally achievable. But, like, it's, um, it was definitely, like, you know, it wasn't like you know it wasn't like hey why didn't you drive 20 minutes in a road it was like hey why'd you open leave um, I think that with the benefit of hindsight we've been proven more right than wrong to do this uh, I think it was definitely a bet in 2011 and there was a real tension like a lot of VCS would say versions of when is the rest of the team coming over we need you all in San Francisco and they kind of like you know a lot of people say this and they they make some pretty bizarre, hand wavy points around, like, oh, there's something in the air here, or whatever. Um, for us, the decision simply was uh, down to like, what is the what's going to maximise productivity, efficiency, and output? And anything that would have us all immigrating uh, would have been or emigrating would have been would have not would have at least been a pretty significant short term hit. Um, mm-hmm. It's also a genuine, I think, and motivational thing. Like, we all had like family and friends here, and. Uh, So like, it wasn't a total no-brainer. But then there's also another piece, which is we know Ireland, and we had people, you know, if you said to me in 2011, name 25 people who you'd hire if you had a software company, I would have given you 25 names. And I look out the window right now, and there's 25 people if they are out there now. Maybe some of them have gone on and started other companies. But like, you know, we had our own sort of addressable market, in a sense, in Ireland. Um, And that meant that when we raised our first million in 2012, like we we went from like four people to twelve people very very, very quickly because we kind of had the names already predefined and uh and you know so I think our ability to scale from an engineering uh product management design perspective was really really uh strong, stronger than it is for most valley companies today um uh, and I think that really helped us at the same time i you know you know, VCs were definitely saying it's more important to hire people in San Francisco, you should grow your team over here, blah, blah, blah. And I don't think that they're necessarily wrong. Uh, certainly not in 2011, 2012, like it was, it was an easier pitch back then. Uh, I think that, you know, bluntly, if you want to scale a marketing org that has any experience bringing a hyper growth, software as a service type company to the market and you know getting into like 1 million in revenue, 10 million in revenue, et cetera, uh, you're not going to find anyone who's done it, plus or minus three people in Ireland. So like some functions, we just literally could not have done in Ireland whatsoever. Sales would be one, marketing would be another, uh, where you actually, if you want, if you want like executive leadership that's been there and done it, you kind of need to be in the Valley or at least uh, maybe maybe New York or like, uh, but yeah, for the most part, it's just not commonplace. However, uh, to the degree uh, that you need people who can like engineer and design software, we actually do have a lot of them in Ireland, and some of it's thanks to sort of the, the like, the tech scene in Ireland, like like Amazon, uh, you, you name it, Facebook, Google, LinkedIn, Amazon, Twitter, you name a company, they have a shitload of engineers here, and, uh, and that's really, really helped. Like, we have a lot of, say, ex-Amazon people here, which is really good when you need to process as much data as we do, because they've done it all, you know? So, like, I, I think, like, there was good reasons that we massively benefited from doing this in Ireland. Uh, from an R&D perspective. Um, I think there was very good reasons why we had to do go to market in San Francisco. And then I think in the later years, we've found that, like, in general, spreading out is useful. Like, so we all opened a Chicago office and a Sydney office for, like, doing sales and support around the clock. Then we opened a London office most recently to tap into more and more R&D talent, more engineers, more designers, etc. cetera. Uh, so that, that's kind of how it's been how it's played out. I do think... Um, I, you know, I've heard directly and uh, and kind of uh, in uh, indirectly, the general VC narrative now is like, here's your $5 million. Step one, get the hell out of the valley. It's too expensive here. You're going to piss it all away way in office space. Uh, yeah. That that like resonates. I think um, there will become, there will come an, a, an ROI challenge for the valley itself. Uh, and I think the remote work um, sort of uh, growth will fuel that. I also think the realization that you can definitely uh, build critical parts of your software outside of uh, like you know the, the nine four one zero three zip code, uh, and it, it'll still work. You know, with the, with the, it won't be any bugger. Um, I think people are going to get this, and so I do think that like Silicon Valley has a bit of a challenge on its hands. Not like I mean, I think I think San Francisco will be better for it. Like, cause, you know, I, I think this will be a positive thing for the city uh, when people start like, kind of realizing that they don't need to compress as heavily as they are right now. Uh, so. That, that's kind of how I see it unfolding. Um, but yeah, it's been interesting to watch the journey. The flip side has been um Dublin has started to become like a more sane choice. Now we have like, you know, when we started, no one was here, now spots here and Zendesk are here, and all sorts of people are coming here. Uh Stripe's here now as well. Like you know, uh so like uh it's you know our choice has definitely been vindicated with the fullness of time.
0: Absolutely. No, I think I was you know, I was out in the in the valley of the startup, a startup, series A startup for about a year or so. Uh, and then we got acquired, and it was it was interesting because when we were putting our fundraising materials together and ultimately closed, we raised about 15 million. It uh, so much of the cost went to customer acquisition, real estate, right, and then attrition of talent, mm-hmm. right, and how you attract good talent, yeah. right. And so yeah. uh, your your point is very sound, which is you know I'm in Atlanta now, where I'm originally from, mm-hmm. and the the dynamics of the conversation when you raise you know a couple million dollars is very very different. Yes. Right. Um, and and I think there's actually something to it too, which was to your point that, you know, the value will be better for it. I think is the idea of building software, product management, design, et cetera, become more and more democratized. It's actually very powerful to be closer to your customer basis, yeah. right? So one of the things we, we talk about a lot in the Atlanta tech scene is Atlanta's got the third richest, um, you know, Fortune 500 ecosystem in the States, mm-hmm. right? So there's nothing quite like it than going, down the street to a UPS or a Home Depot, Delta Airlines, et cetera, and just yeah. understanding what our problems are, right? Yeah. Now, the big challenge in Atlanta, right, as, as many other cities in the U.S., is exactly what you mentioned, which is getting those, you know, 20-odd high-growth salespeople that have led a fast-growth startup before, yeah. right? The marketing folks that know how to set up, you know, the yeah. ecosystem environments that are hiring good executive or senior-level talent is a, is a massive, massive yeah. challenge.
1: Yeah, right. I, and, and, and that's generally true right across Europe. It's, it's basically true, I would say, anywhere that's not that's not the Valley and maybe Seattle. You know, that's okay. about it, like yeah. You know, so and maybe New York, I guess. But like you're you're talking about that number of cities. Uh, so like so maybe the future is kind of like um like a thin 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 clients type thing. Like where like you know yes, the company is formally like and that the senior most leadership team are together in a certain place, but for the most part, uh, mm-hmm. like the talent is everywhere.
0: Everywhere else is everywhere else. How have you, Deb, as you've, you know, this is something I've been thinking a lot about in in my own career. One of the things I've been thinking a lot about, and I'm curious to hear your take on, is how have you thought about, you know, your own kind of personal development and skill building as the company has continually scaled and grown, right? I mean, when, you know, when you're in an environment, I can speak kind of from a McKinsey perspective, but this is very similar to, like, let's say a Google, you know, any large tech company, et cetera. There's an infrastructure, there's resources, right? There's kind of a whole system, Right. Now, I think there's different kind of uh, there's different benefits of obviously working in startup or smaller organizations a lot more is learned by doing and, and a lot more quicker rep. but I think you have to be a lot more intentional about the way you think about your own kind of personal development and skill building. H- how have you thought about that especially because of the growth that intercom has experienced?
1: Yeah, I mean part of it is you often put yourself last in all these circumstances so like if intercom succeeds, the like the pressure on me to get another job is pretty low or like, uh, so like the idea, you know, so that's not to say I don't want to grow, but it's just like, uh, it's the reason why you can kind of, uh, not obsess too much about your own like ability in a sense. Um, yeah. the, the reason I'm obsessive with my own ability is mostly to make sure I can still do the job that I do have. Um, so like, the, like generally speaking, as, as my role's evolved or as anyone's role in the startup evolves, it becomes primarily about people and much less about like the the tooling and skills. So like I could read a million blogs on how to be a better product manager or designer, but like I don't do any of that work, and you know it, it wouldn't be necessarily useful. What is useful is like you know uh, understanding how our business works, understanding the complexities of trade-offs, understanding like the strategy behind various different uh, platform approaches. Or understanding like how to how to coach people to get the most out of them, or how to, how to find their like blind spots, how to procure new talent, all that sort of stuff. They're they're the actual things I do on a regular basis, along with like you know communicating to the org, sharing context, uh, sharing energy where I can, inspiring uh, where I can, etc. That's kind of like what what the actual job is, and um, the best like the best way I've found has been to like like you know look to and learn from uh, people who I admire who are doing a phenomenal job. So. Like other CEOs, uh, although I, I, obviously I'm not CEO, but like it's my job is often similar because I, a large amount of look into me for something like, as in what product are we building or whatever. Um, you kind of look towards people you admire. You work out what it is that what traits do they have that you wish that you had, and that, sometimes that could be like their ability to deliver a narrative, or it could be their ability to like uh, to make insightful comments, or it could be like the breadth of knowledge, or it could be like the depth of, uh, the depth of intelligence on one specific thing. And, uh, and you try to transpose the pieces that you admire in other people onto your career in a way that would have maximum impact for the company. And I think in that sense, that's probably the only way in which, um, in which I'm different to a typical employee in that, uh, in that like, I only really care about being great in the ways Intercom wins, if you know what I mean. So that means even if I don't want to learn a skill, I have to. Uh, but on the flip side, if I want to, it, it, just because I'm really interested in something, it doesn't mean it's useful for me to learn. Uh, it, it mean like I have to like I, you know my job number one is always be the best at the position you have and there are, like the challenge you kind of face there is, is like oh, it's like the eternal sort of uh, founder co-founder kind of paradox. You're 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 always going to have a position that's growing in stature and you need to grow faster than it. So like being like you know running product in a four person startup is relatively easy in comparison to running it in a six hundred person startup, right? Uh, having like one person report to you versus having like 180 people report to you, like indirectly or whatever, is like is a different type of challenge. So you're always kind of making sure that you're you're the best you can be for exactly the job you have, uh, and it's uh it's it's hard. Like you know, you have to have enough humility to know the areas where you're fundamentally not good enough, and you often you hire into those areas. But uh, but like you know, one of the great things I'd say about like about uh, running a, a startup is like you do kind of have the opportunity to hire phenomenally great people and learn from them too. Too, So you might be like, Hey, I'm not good at X. You can do two things about that. You can go and hire somebody who is good at it and that helps intercom. But then also you can work alongside that person and learn how it is that they're so good at it. And that helps you and that helps intercom. So you kind of like, and you have that obligation to like, you have to be humble enough to know the things that you're shit at, humble enough to know the things that like, you just need to work harder at. And then uh, you have to be like willing to do something about it and like, the very active learning often requires you to assume that someone else is better than you at something. Uh, some people have a real problem with that. Uh, I don't. I'm usually pretty good at accepting that there are experts out there. Um, but, yeah, then you have to like, go and do something about it. You have to be able to uh, you know, beguile them, charm them into working for Intercom, and then ideally, like, leach all their knowledge off them, you know? Uh, that That is the challenge. Like, that's what you have to do.
0: Yeah, I think the, that's, that's actually one of the biggest takeaways I've had in, in my role for the last six months or so is I think the quicker that you can accept the humility of, you know, it's a couple of things, right? One is I think you have to have an attitude of humility. I think the second thing is you have to have an attitude that at the end of the day, if you're the person with all the answers, you haven't set up the team the right way. And the third thing is you have to be hyper self-aware, right? To really recognize what are my spikes and where where am I very, very good. And I can help the organization and where areas that are either blind spots or it's not the highest ROI of of my personal time. And I couldn't agree with you more, which is I think the lens of thinking is very different because it's the kind of lens of thinking I approach with our organization as well, which is ultimately at the end of the day, you're 100% aligned with, you know, whatever is good for the business, yeah. Right. is what we're going to kind of do. Right. Which can be very different than, you know, I think that's the culture to aspire to build, but that can have its own kind of practical difficulties you yeah. know, on the ground in different organizations, especially as you grow more and more. You mentioned, you know, organizations. Uh, you alluded to this. You said, you know, learning from other organizations that have done things well. I'm curious, you know, what are some examples of those other organizations that you look to and you take inspiration from at, at Intercom. And then, you know, also kind of taking that one level deeper, who are the, who are the leaders or the people you look at, right? And you say that they've done you know great. You've taken inspiration from them and you also instilled that at Intercom.
1: Um, one person I greatly admire and uh, know a bit is uh, Patrick from Stripe. And um, one of the things he said on this exact topic, uh, which really resonated with me is that um, it's dangerous to look to contemporaries and, and assume that they're as good as they sound. So, mm-hmm. such so and such a company raises at a five billion dollar valuation, and they were like only founded yesterday. They must be amazing. Well, like we don't know. Uh, we, you know, there's a lot. There's a lot of time yet to play out here, and uh, that company could go to zero or it could go to five hundred trillion. Who knows, right? Um, yep. When you, it's kind of like similar with books, right? If you if you gave me a hundred books to read. I, uh, f- for all time I probably wouldn't pick 100 that were all released in the past year why, why would you right in some sense like you know there's probably been better books written before and, and actually with the, longer, the, the longer the amount of time has passed since a book was published or a company was founded the more information you have about how good it actually turned out to be yeah. so like for me knowing the type of company Intercom is like as in we are not Pixar and we are not like Supercell right like as in we were a certain we're a B2B SaaS company right um, I look to, like, the best examples of those types of companies that have like, have, like, achieved the most. Uh, and I've done so, like, in ways that I admire, like, not by doing, like, you know, dodgy deals or, like, by, like, you know, having, like, you know, basically doing things in a way that I think is appropriate. Uh, so for me, like, the it, it's hard to get away from companies like Salesforce or Microsoft or things like that because, like, You know, we've had, like, a good 15 years, or in Salesforce's case, maybe 20, in Microsoft's case, maybe 35, 40, or whatever, years of looking at this. And we've learned a lot. And it turns out they're really good. You know, now, how do we learn as much as we can? Well, good, let's find the best books written about those companies. Let's find out if the people who worked in those companies have, like, written anything good. And let's go deep on that. And, And, like, there's, you know, there's almost always better insight there than there will be and I really I hate naming companies so I'll just take your fictional multi-billion dollar company that's hot shit in the valley right now Uh, I think there's more to be learned from Microsoft probably than there is from the fictional hot shit in the valley company right now because who knows in two years time that they could have their lunch eaten by some up and coming YC scrappy app or they could have burnt in an entire hellhole, or it could have worked out maybe their software doesn't work at scale, or they never cracked the enterprise, or actually the valuation was way too high, and they're not as good as everyone thought they were. We don't know, so why take that bet, right? So, uh, so I think that's a, that, that's how I think about it in a sense. Um, and then, like to answer your second question, I guess yeah, it's hard to get away from like uh, Patrick and John at Stripe. I think they're like phenomenally, it's full of phenomenally smart people. Then also people I think who just analyze the industry and, and frequently have a have good takes on things. So like a lot of like the a lot of the folks who I find most insightful um, are often people who, who have like you know seen the problems I see from the inside out and have solved them. Uh, and maybe today they're a venture capitalist, or maybe they still hold a position. Um, but like you know, in general, it's like like if David Sachs wants to talk on Twitter, if the CEO, say former CEO of Yammer, he now is a VC. But if he wants to talk about selling the enterprise. Uh, or he wants to talk about what it's like to work inside a large company. I look at that and I say, well, he, you know, Yammer obviously had a decent exit, and he's worked at Microsoft for a bit, so he's seen both sides of that. He also knows a bit about M and and he's had multiple successful startups, and he was in PayPal. I'll take his opinion over somebody who's got like a, a you know, a, a, a flames style tweet, uh, Twitter feed, or whatever. Right? Like, like I, I generally like, you know, I, I try to like. What I'm just going to say, hey, I, I follow this person because they're generally smart. It's usually because they have like exhibited a track record of making good, smart decisions in times when, when smart decisions were needed and necessary. So, um, and I could, you know, it's random to pick on socks, but it's just he was the last tweet I read uh, before I jumped on. Um, mm-hmm. But like, it's, it's it is that type of thing. It's like I look to people who have done the things that I hope to one day do, uh, and if they can reason clearly and make good, articulate cases as to why they made decisions. And that's a proof that it wasn't a fluke. And uh, and that's really important too. So that's kind of how I think about
0: it. There's there's two kind of questions I have to, to round out the conversation. They both go in a in a slightly different direction. The the first one is is pretty tactical. This is something that you had tweeted out that I have taken a lot of inspiration from and really instilled into my day-to-day. So I have to thank you for that. That's first. No, but it's no the Venn diagram construct between your to-dos, your email, oh. and your ke- right? And I want you to talk a little bit more about that idea. Uh, and, and you're, you know, you obviously have different explanations for what's going on when specific circles overlap one another in different ways. But I, I, especially as I entered into this new role and into more of a leadership operational role, as opposed to a kind of a consulting advisory role, I've really taken actually that construct to heart. And it's, it's actually increased my productivity quite a bit. And I, I think it's, I think you had a very good way of articulating something that Instinctually, is easy to understand but difficult to frame, and not not necessarily many people follow. So, talk talk a lot talk a little bit
1: more about that. So, so like the, the gist of the tweet is that like you, you know most people who do productivity who work in, in, with productivity tools treat buckets they have like their email, uh, they have their own to do list, and they have their calendar. And the, the heart of the tweet was email tends to be shit that lands in your plate from other people. To do tends to be things that you want to get done because you write that. And your calendar is actually the sort of the asset test of reality. It's like, what are you actually spending your time on? Uh, I often have my EA frequently uh, report back on, on any given month, where did I invest my time? So like literally, where, like, of, of what percentage was in one-to-ones with my direct team? What percentage was working on X? What percentage was working on Y? And I often find that's interesting because that's like where the rubber meets the road. Like the, There's a phrase, I think Clay Christensen said, like, if you want to see a company's strategy, look at its checkbook stubs. Because like literally where you invest is what you do and um for me like the the thing i'd say is time is the only zero sum thing your to-dos can grow exponentially and you can have hundreds or millions of things and your email won't stop but this moment this 45 minutes i've spent in talking to you i don't get it back like that was on my calendar and that's the difference like there's no there's not nine other meetings that i'm also tipping away on at the same time this is it so at the very heart, it's like you should treat your calendar like your ultimate to-do list because it's gonna be your to do list. When you ask yourself, what did I actually get done? The calendar speaks the truth. And I think a lot of calendaring tools are not designed with that mindset because they basically try to sort of say, hey, well, the world's your oyster. You know, the days are 24 hours long. You've got seven of them in a week. Uh, let's go, like 30 minute increments. Um, I think like a, a different way to think about calendaring would be you sit down at the start of the week with all the shit you want to get done and you allocate it into all the slots and whatever is left is left and that's it. Um, so, I, you know, the, the biggest advice I give to people is honestly like look at your calendar and then get into the habit of designing your calendar. And sometimes and you should do that at the start of the week before anyone else gets the first stab at it, right? Because, you know, it, you know, email is an open invite for anyone to grab anyone's attention, right? That's like you can do that. uh. No one else can write into your to-do list, but the problem is your to-do list doesn't go anywhere. Whereas your email, you'll you'll go to every day and you'll reply. So your to-do list doesn't, like, complain, right? It doesn't whinge. It doesn't say, why aren't you getting to me, yet? you know? Um, but your calendar, the clock ticks, The you know the, the minutes we have in life are all finite and they all whistle away. And, you know, if you want something to literally get done, you calendar it. And if you can't calendar it, it's because you can't find a space for it and therefore you're saying other things are more important and uh and i think like that like once you actually accept those kind of forces of of nature in life you start to get much more like no i won't jump on a podcast or yes i will go to your conference or whatever like those things are so easy to end up on your calendar not realizing that hey this every single thing in your calendar that isn't on your to-do list is the shit that re- is the reason you don't get your job done you know what i mean so like so that that's the kind of the overall rant of it and um And, like, after I posted that tweet, a lot of people reached out saying, hey, I'm designing a different type of mail client, calendar, to-do list, whatever, right? One that starts off with time allocation as a first-class principle or whatever. And, like, I do think we're going to see more interesting shit in this space as people realize that, like, there's just no end of work, you know?
0: Yep. Yep. No, I think it's going to be an interesting space to follow because I, I do think it's a... It's, like I was saying, it's an intuitive way to think, or well, maybe I shouldn't even say intuitive. I think it's once it, you articulated it, it's intuitive to understand, but it's very actually challenging to do in practice if you're not applying proactive mindset, because it's yeah. so easy to fall into a reactionary, I've got 27 things to do, sure, just grab half an hour on my calendar. And yeah. if you think about it at the micro level, kind of the inside out level, it's easy yeah. to do each transaction outside in, yeah. right? Yeah. You. You often don't do the legwork to take a step back and say, "Wow, I spent I spend X number of hours in unproductive meetings that I really didn't mean to have, right? Yeah. Or warm priorities, or whatever it might be, mm-hmm. right?" And I think that's the classic, especially kind of in tech, but in, in any kind of company, it's yeah. that type of kind of microscopic incremental thinking can generate kind of outsized outsized. I, I so think kind of, I agree. So, as as a final question, Des. Um, you know, and and this is actually, frankly, why I wanted to have you on the on the show today. You know, reading your story online and, and this article in particular that you wrote was was very inspirational to me. It touched me, actually, quite quite frankly, quite personally. Um, this past February, you authored a, a very personal post um, titled "She Would Be Eighty Today," and and I want you to talk a bit more about the post. And and obviously, feel free. To go into as much as little detail as you're comfortable with, but I, I want you to talk about it. A, because I think it was it's very impactful. B, it's obviously clearly very personal. But talk about you know what it's all meant for you and how it's really shaped your outlook on your journey, both at Intercom as as well as just in life generally.
1: Yeah, I tried to write a post February to thirteenth every year for like I guess six seven years, ago. and. I always felt like it was in some sense uh, the, the. I could never get it perfect enough or right enough or like get it to summarize everything. The, the post was supposed to be about my mother who died right in the early days of intercom. And it was supposed to kind of just be a respectful kind of acknowledgement that like when she passed away, I realized a large chunk of the motivation for intercom for me, or maybe not even for intercom, but like for, uh, for my success in life in a sense was a payback. Uh, so I could pay her back, and robbed of the opportunity to do that, I kind of had to re-examine what the hell was I doing? Like, why not just go get an easy job? Like, you know, you know, like, wh- where where is this drive going to come from now? Uh, like the the post goes into it in more detail, but like, you know, 1980s Ireland wasn't a rich place, and she was a single mother, and uh, and I, I like I had like I had like three brothers and three sisters, and I was the youngest and I'm just you know without like I don't have a clear enough memory but my siblings tell me times were hard like you know it was not easy and um and so I I wrote you know I wanted to acknowledge the journey I had to go on to kind of get to a place where I still wanted badly to succeed um independent of the fact that the success wouldn't mean as much as it could given that I never got to actually do the things that I really wanted to do and uh think so that, like i think it's no coincidence that i got it written this year after having my first child uh i think there's some connection here my first my first my daughter nancy is named after my mother nancy um but also i think um it kind of like you know it's nothing like having a kid to make you realize that life is short if you know what i mean like i don't know. like anyone who's listening like at this but like you know nothing makes you realize time is passing than watching a baby go from like zero days old to like 50 days old, and realizing, shit, she was really cute when she was zero to seven, and I'll never get that time back again, right, all those, like, all, like, literally, time is fucking relentless, you know, um, so I published a post, but, like, as I was writing I, I made a deal with myself that I was going to, like, start typing, and at the very end, hit send, or hit publish, or whatever, uh, well, yeah, it wasn't a blog, I was, I was actually handwriting it in HTML, which is part of the reason why it's in such a state, um, and the, that was the deal I made myself, but, like, uh because i knew that way i'd get it done so i so i went into it it was a single pass right I, I, i've since gone back to it once to neaten up a few glaring typos um but man i uh was as i was writing and i got towards the end like the thing that and you can kind of see it in the article like i i got pissed off as i got towards the end of it because uh like you know, it just kind of reminded me how like fucking uh cyborg like tech people are because we all kind of pretend that we don't have families and we don't have friends and we're not people and that, uh, that we all, all, all we are is these like 24 seven productivity machines who fucking drink lattes and write code on the weekends. And and we're so smart and we read all the time and we meditate and we journal and we fucking, sp- uh, you know, spin class and we soul cycle. And then we go to Dolores Park and we have a, you know, we take five more Instagrams and then we go back and we do the whole thing again and that's life. And, uh, and like, I, I feel like there's this performative, tech lifestyle that we all fucking subscribe to that's like ludicrous. and if anyone's actually living that and not paying attention to the fact that everyone around them is dying and all their loved ones won't be there one day uh and they're too busy getting annoyed because oh some company on twitter made some social media mistake and that needs seven tweets you know it's like give me a effing break uh yeah now I self censor. um but uh so like I think, like, what caught hold of me as I was writing that was just, like, the, um, the reality is, like, whatever people think of, like, me or or you or anyone, like, know that there's actual humans behind all this shit trying as hard as they can, and know also that this thing is only one thing in life, and, uh, and like, the motivation that I ended up latching onto was, like, that, like, I am going to die, and I'm going to die realistically, statistically in the next 45 years, and... Uh, that means I have like a small amount of birthdays left, right? And I have certainly like a small amount of weekends left, you know. Uh, and when you think about that, you realize shit, like, uh, I'm gonna have to look back at my life at some point and think I spent it well. And that's where that Raymond Carver piece comes from, which is, Did you get what you wanted from this life, even so? And he was asked that question on his deathbed, and his answer was, I did. And they were asked, Well, what was it you wanted? And he said, I wanted to. Feel myself beloved upon the earth and to know myself beloved upon the earth and i think like that you know in the middle of all the like the medium articles and the tweets and the scorpi tweets and the, the like like the takedowns and the council cultures and all that like just it's it's important to remember that like at some point you're gonna like look at this audit trail of your life uh and think about the time you actually did spend you know literally spend and you can think about calendaring apps in this regard as well uh and you ask yourself did you spend it well and what's the definition of well well i you know it's not going to be that i impress some fucking vcs on twitter mm-hmm. it might be like did i leave a resounding sort of thing on earth that is greater than what came before me like was i net accretive or not and uh and if you can achieve that i think that's more important than most of the other things you're going to achieve and and i say accretive, but i really don't mean in dollar science to be super clear i mean like when you're gone, will people think fondly of you anyway? Uh, will they speak fondly of you anyway because you matter to them? If yes, great. And if no, the time to fix it is now. We have loads of time left. We still need, just need to change So that That was the kind of the the, the real life performance, if you like, of the piece. Um, but yeah, the, that's how I thought about it. It's, it's about spend your time wisely.
0: It was it was incredibly powerful, um, and and like I said, it it also kind of deep deeply personally affected me, which is. Uh, it was one of the most impactful pieces I've I've read, honestly, in the last few years. So I wanted to thank you for that, and I actually wanted to, you know, uh, you know, c- congratulate you on it, frankly, because I think it was. It I, I know it's touched a lot of people, and I think it's a very important message, you know, that needs to be typed um, and and needs to be told. And Des, from from my side, this has, been, this has been an awesome conversation. I'm I'm really glad you were able to make the time. You know, thanks again
1: for joining us, and and really enjoyed having you on today. Cool. Thank you so much for the time, Roman.